City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Inside the Hive on the All Hornets Podcast Network, one podcast feed with multiple shows, making sure we cover the Charlotte Hornets from every angle. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. The All Hornets Podcast is affiliated with the Fans First Sports Podcast Group. Today's show, Chase, we are going to be doing a Hornets fan Q&A. We had 30, 40 or so questions submitted. Uh, We've gone through and we picked out our favorite 10. So we're going to be covering all sorts of topics today. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And Chase, I normally the host induction introduction. I will uh, say to you, "How's it going?" And I was like, "I want to mix it up. I want to change it up. It's the off season right now. We have to bring some energy." So uh, Chase, I want you to tell the listeners one thing that people don't know about you. And this is like a job interview type of thing, isn't it? Like, what is something interesting about you? So this is my chance to you to start with the podcast. Uh, tell the listeners, and I'm giving you some time to think here. Tell the listeners one thing they don't know about Chase Whitney. We need to get to know each other better here, Chase. We've been Ooh. doing this for years now. Yeah, you. I did not expect that whatsoever. You really. I know. I did not read you. No, and I, I, I don't view myself as a particularly interesting person <laughs> either. So this, this is. I've always been bad with like, you know, when you're at like in school or something and it's like oh three two truths and a lie or give us like three interesting facts about yourself for like icebreakers and whatnot i've always been terrible at that kind of stuff uh, hmm. i think i mean other than basketball and writing and all that kind of thing i guess i have a very strong sense of or strong i'm very knowledgeable in like geography and stuff i was in the all of the geography competitions and stuff when you were in school and so like geography b spelling b but so are we I talking, guess that's, that's pretty much my, maps, my, my fun capitals, fact. Capitals, countries? Yes. What, what, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can rip off, like, every U.S. capital, like, locations of things, like, con- other countries, capitals, stuff like that, you know, big Canadian provinces and cities and whatnot. So I've, got, I've gotten pretty, pretty proficient with my knowledge of the world and all of its locations. But over the, over the many, many years, so I, I would say other than... If I wasn't like a basketball writer or something like that, I would definitely have gotten into that when I was in school. But here I am instead. So that's, uh, I, I and that's a, not even a very good one either. I wish I had one that was like, I know this is this I is good. President I, or something like that. I, I'm going to be <laughs> testing. I'm going to test you on two capitals uh, once I've done with this little anecdote. But in in geography, I used to sit next to my friend at school, uh, who was the guy who got me into basketball. Right, he was the guy who started a school team. And he, he really struggled with geography uh, and generally struggled with school in general. And um, I remember I used to like really try and help him. Like I used to like try and guide him, point him in the right direction, stuff like that. And and I took some like, pride being like, I'm helping this guy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my role. 
And then when we're in like our big in the in the UK, we call them GCSEs, which is when you're 16 years old, you do them. Um, and I was sitting okay. in the exam hall and I could see George over to my left. And the paper had like five different topics within the paper, but you only answered two, right? And your, our school had only taught us two of the five topics. So like one topic was about weather, which we'd never researched. One was about like, I want to say something to do with forests which we'd never done. And I'm doing the paper and I look over and I can see George. He's completing the weather section for the exam, which, which we were never taught. We were never ever taught that <laughs> in any single lesson. And he's there, I can see him at the end, like he thinks we have to do the whole paper and they couldn't have made it any clearer. And he's like scribbling being like, and he came out, I was like, I, did, I didn't even finish the last two sections. I was like, George. We only had to do two of the five sections. Um, so it, it didn't go so well for George. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, he must have just been completely in the dark on some of these as Imagine well. Imagine the stress that you down. go and sit in the right, exam exactly. and you go, oh no. You're like, is that I have a, no idea what this is. Is that a, <laughs> a Columbus type cloud? Or what you know? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, I have been learning about a completely different thing than what I thought I was going to be tested on. Yeah, that must yeah. have been Poor a George. tough moment right there. Poor George. Absolutely. I agree. Um, my my quiz. Yeah, what's, what's, you, what's your fun fact now? Here, you oh, got to okay. give me one too. Um, my fun fact. Um, uh, I probably should have thought of mine, considering I was going to ask you the same thing. Oh yeah, I was. There's no chance you you weren't going to get me to ask you the same thing. Um, I, this is maybe something a lot of people don't know. My great uncle. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, my great uncle is Lawrence Olivier. Which you might go, who is that? Uh, and the, the older listeners among you might know the name. Probably not. But basically, in his time, he is like, how do I, how do I say? Who's like the great, he's basically one of the greatest stage actors of the century. So like in England, there is the Olivier National Theatre named after him. Um, the Olivier Award is like prestigious awards given to actors. He was like a well-known Shakespearean actor. So if you Google Lawrence Olivier, he did King Lear. He did all these things. So, uh, and my uh, my great auntie, Joan Plowright. Yeah, is, I was just going to say, you click on his Wikipedia, you look yeah. down, spouses, Joan Plowright. The, the connection yeah. is right there. It did, that did not take me very, that's crazy. And, and so Joan, that's, your, that's your aunt. That's my, that's my aunt. And she's friends with like Helen Mirren, Judi Dench, um, like all like the famous okay. old British actresses that, who all grew up being on stage yeah. together in like, when they were That's like crazy. 20, 30 years old. And um, you probably you might have seen like movies. She's in the Spiderwick Chronicles, Ladies in Lavender, and she was the maid in 101 Dalmatians. So hit me up if you've seen these movies, people, because my great I mean, aunt was in 101 that. Dalmatians is like a classic. Like That's now, a obviously the, the animated version is like for kids that is like at least my, that were our age growing up you like every single kid watched the like on their vcr like the animated version 101 dalmatians at least so that's crazy that she was in like a movie as or adaptation that was as famous that is nuts dude i mean this blows mine completely out <laughs> of the water i have no famous relatives especially ones that are not screen actors and some of the biggest of their time nonetheless that is that, yeah, that is infinitely cool. I mean, that's got to be your go-to fun fact, right? And in, in any of these, I, like, you know what? It's, it's really not because, like, it's quite like 
I don't know, older generations who you sometimes like forget these things exist. But I remember when I was working in, when I just got out of university, I was working at a, a university in the sports department and um, I called someone up and they were obviously like the biggest Lawrence Olivier fan in the world. Like, and I called them up to speak to him about something completely different. He was like, wait, are you related to this person? I was like, oh yeah. And he was like, what is Lawrence Olivier's great nephew doing working at a university? He was thinking I should be like living in <laughs> like Hollywood. Like you, you should be on the big screen. Like yeah. you, you should be up there. Like you're you're in the the 2024 yeah. 101 Dalmatians live action version. Yeah, but uh, alas, I was not. So uh, anyway, <laughs> th those are my those are my some fun facts about the show. That went on longer than I thought it was going to do. Um, oh yeah, that, I mean that was way cooler than <laughs> than mine. I like unbelievable. You should have just started led with that. Now that we know I mean, going back, it is look. Folks, let's let's open up the curtain a little bit. It is mid-September. We've been holding back the Hornets fan Q&A for as long as we could. And uh, we've only got a week, two weeks now till training camp. And we had to fall back for the Hornets fans to give us our content. And you responded in with some great questions. So thank you very much. Hopefully this is going to be a fun show. Um, Chase, I'm going to get started with our first question. From NickyBoy4581 on Twitter, who, by the way, NickyBoy, British Hornets fan, who has also left us a five-star review uh, over the summer, which, thank you very much. Top draw. James and Chase are absolutely on top of the game of the podcast. Keep up the good work, guys, and long may it continue. So thank you, Nick, for the great review. And in return for your review, you get your questions. So Nick's question is, honest opinion, do either one of or both of Gordon Hayward or Terry Rozier get traded this offseason? And I've tried to kind of ask us to maybe try and put like a percentage likely next to each for what we think. So Chase, I'm going to ask you first, what do you, what do you think is a percentage likely that Gordon Hayward or Terry Rozier get traded this season? So I don't know if it's necessarily likely that I would say that either one of them does, but there's definitely a chance. I would say Hayward has a stronger chance. Probably 25% would be the number that I would put it on. He certainly has more, I guess, tradable value as an expiring contract. Um, plus resetting the clock on his large contract slot, like $30 million, that might be worth it with Melo's extension kicking in next year, uh, depending on like how willing the team is to go into the tax. Like that just gives the team more flexibility with high salary players down the line because you obviously have Miles Bridges' bird rights as well. You could re-sign him to a big contract. You have Melo on a big contract. You get the bird rights for the player that would potentially replace Hayward's deal. You could sign them to another one too. Rozier, I'd have much lower, like 10%, unless like a markedly better player comes available. And that would also have to be at the right price since the Hornets don't have their own first rounder this year. I think he's probably staying put at least until the summer. He might not be the ideal backcourt partner for Melo, but he's still a very valuable offensive player as an off-ball shooter, secondary creator. So, And I think that's especially valuable for a team that was dead last in offense last season. So it's worth giving him another year, I think, uh, with a healthy squad. What about you, James? What do you think about Hayward and Rozier? Yeah, we're kind of aligned with our, you know, big picture thinking. Interesting thing, Gordon Hayward, I was looking at this today. I was doing some research for an article. If the Hornets keep Gordon Hayward, his cap hold next summer is $47 million, Which basically means that if they were to keep Gordon Hayward, they would be like, they would be maybe if, if they send Gordon Hayward to like a $20 million deal, they would be like flirting with the tax, which this team isn't going to do. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, I, I think Gordon Hayward 
is by far the most likely. I've got him to be different now for 39%. There we go. Um, okay. Mine was 25.4, actually, to 25. be more exact. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just to be awkward. I, I think Charlotte are out of the playing hunt and they have no route back into it. Then I think they will move Gordon Hayward. I think they did very similar last year with Mason Plumley and Jayden McDaniels. Mitch Kupchuk said with Mason Plumley, the future of this roster is not with Mason Plumley. And they wanted to give him the opportunity to go somewhere, potentially try and win, and then they dealt into the Clippers. I think they would probably maybe treat Gordon the same way. But if there is a sniff for them to be, you know, in the ninth, tenth seed, I just don't see them making that forward thinking move while also having something to play for this season, which I think is kind of, I don't know, probably similar to you, but I think that's probably just maybe a little bit more likely that, that Haywood could be, or like if he was injured, for example, if he was going to be out the rest of the year, maybe you just move him. Um, if he can come back like around playoff time or something like that, and a contender might want to take the, take the risk. I don't know, but I think Haywood more likely Rosier. I agree with you. I think I have 15%. I think, uh, Terry Rozier is one of the very few vocal veterans on this roster, and he has his warts defensively. Um, he didn't have quite an efficient season last year, but I think this situation is a much better one for Terry, where he's not going to be asked to do as much. So, yeah, I think we've got Terry, Gordon, around the similar point. I think both of us think it's more unlikely than, than not that they're both going to be probably here for the year to stay. All right. Question number two. This one comes from at Bryn Thor on Twitter. Shout out to Bryn Thor. And shout out to everybody that sent us a question just right off the top here. What player from the Hornets' 35-year history, which they are celebrating this year in the 35-year anniversary season, would help the team the most if he were transported in a time machine from his Hornets prime to this year's squad? I had a very quick answer for this one, and it led me down to a bit of a highlight and stats rabbit hole today. Uh, so did so I. James. I had a quick answer. Okay. I, I was similar to you, but then I was like, well, I don't want to just write this down. Let me do my research. And I think my answer changed. So this is Ooh. interesting. I'm curious to see who you picked. Okay. I'll, I'll let you go question, first. By that, the way. Great that, question, by Great question. Very thought. good question. Yeah. I love this kind of stuff because like th there are so many players in NBA history that, you know, you could say, oh, this guy was so much so far ahead of his time. Or this guy, if he only played in the 80s instead of the 2000s, he would have been so much better. So this kind of stuff is so much fun. To think about especially through a hornet specific lens but james i'll, I'll let you go first because yours sounds like a quite an interesting pathway you got to your choice here well my initial reaction was gerald wallace right um i thought his 09 10 season he was a complete two-way wing great defender but a downhill driving threat that was the year he averaged 10 rebounds a game he averaged a, a double double for the season from small forward which is crazy he shot 37% from three that year as well. 1.1 blocks, 1.5 steals. You know, they were a decent team. He played really well. He was an all-star. Uh, he was like one of the in top five, I think, for rebounding in the league. And for what this team needs, we talked about some of the defensive stuff. So that was my immediate reaction. I thought, this is, this is simple. This is a no-brainer. And then I started doing my research, Chase. And I thought, as good as Gerald Wallace was, Popping Alonzo morning on this team at center could be pretty monsterous. Ooh. Like 20, 22 points, 10 rebounds, three blocks. 
Imagine if you just plop that. I know we're excited about Mark Williams, but you're talking about a elite defensive center who is physical, uh, basically like pro probably make the Hornets like a decent defense just by himself with the skill on the wing and the guard positions in this team. I actually, in the end, I think I decided this to go with Alonzo Mourning, that 94-95 season from, from Zoe. At, I didn't even really think about a big just because of like Mark and Nick. I know. Fold, but that is actually such, I mean, having an all-star like slash all-NBA caliber big man for LaMelo that's like oh. such a good scorer on the low block and can just, is like an absolute glass cleaner would be, yeah, it's just an incredible pairing. Not that, I mean, Elite. it would be so great. That yeah, that would be great. That I, hmm, that definitely makes me think about it in a different lens. But I think my answer. I think I got to stay firm here. The guy that pops my mind immediately, and I only got further down this rabbit hole as I continued my research, was Glenn Rice. He is like, I honestly, I think he might be one of the best, if not the best Hornets example of a player being like ahead of their time. Like I mentioned a couple minutes yeah. ago, super athletic finisher at the rim. He could score in the mid range off of like pull-up jumpers and floaters. And during his all-star season in 96, 97 with the Hornets, he was 11th in total three pointers, uh, three pointer attempts with 440 taking 5.6 per game. So, I mean, you can imagine transporting that from 9697 into 2023 i mean he's probably approaching like 10 threes per game like similar volume to like what lamello and terry take them at and he made 47 percent of them that season just like players that shoot four 5.6 per attempts per game in the nba now don't really even sniff 47 percent, and that's back then when it just was a much rarer skill and defense was obviously a much different played a significantly different way. made it way harder to get open off a ball and stuff like that. That was the best mark in the league percentage wise. And like an athletic six, eight sharpshooter from all three levels. Like, is that not like almost exactly what we want Brandon Miller to be? I was about to like, say, you we, could we, just we, copy, you could just have two of them. If you put Glenn Rice on this roster and you'd have, you'd have veteran Miller. Brandon Miller and young Brandon Miller, it would be, I would okay. go nuts offensively next to LaMelo. And that, I mean, for a team that really needed that shooting last year, it would like that would have, if you could have done it for last year too, along with this upcoming season, like that we would be looking at a much different roster and long term outlook right now. But Glenn Rice would be like a perfect fit for this backcourt in yeah. my eyes. Yeah. Next to LaMelo Ball, Glenn Rice, LaMelo Ball backcourt. Mm. That'd be. That would be tasty. So, fun question from, from Bryn there. Uh, that was a good thought exercise. Uh, question number three from Smash Smash Nose Ball. Uh, do you think Mark Williams and Nick Richards is a good enough center rotation for a playoff team? So, this one was probably the toughest one for mm. me to answer of all these questions. So, good enough, Eileen, yes, right now. But I Playoffs, do think playing, are you saying so top like a essentially a, yeah yeah top maybe eight. not like top six regular season get like locked playoff but at least a team that's good enough to advance through the play and become a seven or eight seed so I good enough I would lean yes but I do think that like most likely it'd probably be the weakest point of that playoff roster and less because of like the skill level or their adaptability to a playoff environment like I just think that they're skill set redundancy like unless one of them becomes like a 
much better or at least more consistent, willing, able defender in open space. Uh, I, I think like they just need another big that has a different skill set to really be like a more like malleable team that can deal with matchups in a different way. Is that is going not PJ to, Washington? I see. I think so. But I think that having PJ be that guy just creates more of a need at like the forward and wing spots because you're kind of just sliding the depth chart up. Whereas I think they would really benefit from, and this was part of what I was thinking. I think Kai was or is supposed to be that guy, but because he mm. would have that skill set that's really mobile, like open court threat, lob threat in a much different way than Mark and Nick are, and maybe has the potential to like handle the ball and shoot a little bit and would at least just be a much different player on both ends of the court than either of them would be. We don't know if he can be a part of that playoff rotation. At, at any point in his career, he certainly doesn't look like that right now. So I think that you would definitely need to add another big with a different skill set that's more of like a modern, I guess, or like just more skilled big with the ball in his hands in general. Um, maybe at the at the sacrificing some of the athleticism and size that Mark and Nick give you, but I think it would be good enough to get by not good like something that you'd really want to fall back on and would definitely be something that could give you issues at time if it, if yeah. a team has like a shorter quicker center i don't think miami like for example with bam like i don't know what they would necessarily do in that matchup per se and that's uh, just and like in, right in that matchup last year if you remember that's i think the game of mark williams at 2010 um or he did have 20 rebounds in that game he had a big game oh yeah bam. like the the 18 and yeah. 22 or whatever yeah. it was i and think Bam yeah. played heavy minutes in that game and it was interesting Mark Williams had a lot of his better games against Miami. He did one of his better games against OKC. Against teams that were actually quite undersized, who didn't play traditional bigs. And he, he really seemed to take advantage of that. So I think that's a, an interesting thing to note in the regular season. But it was interesting. My gut reaction with this was yes. And then you start to look at the, the center rotations on these teams and you realize that they're either a lot more talented or they're a lot more experienced and it's hard to know, right, what you're going to get out of Mark Williams. I think we know what Nick Richards is, like, pretty solid. Um, but is Mark Williams going to be, like, a 10-10 and 10 guy with a, you know, block and a half? Or is he going to be able to be, like, a 15-12 and 12 guy with, like, two and a half blocks? And I think both things are within the remit of being possible. But it's hard to know right now. I mean, I, I was looking at the, the center rotations that made it last year. And... I would say that they are, I mean, this is hard, like arguably in contention with the Nets who had Nick Claxton, who's like a outside defensive player of the year last year. He was really good. Like if Mark Williams has a Nick Claxton type year this season, that would be really good. Uh, I, I'd be very, very happy with him having a successful season as that. And they had Darren Sharp as their backup center who just didn't even play in the playoffs. Or you've got like the Hawks with Capella and a Kongwu. But I, I think both of those are, it's probably like a, you know, a good center rotation. The Knicks, Mitchell Robinson, Isaiah Hartenstein, um, you know, they're another solid, more experienced. They're just quite young and quite unproven. So I do think Hornets fans have been starved to having like any like average center play since Al Jefferson. That now there are people who like flash some ability. I think in the little Hornets bubble, they're thinking that this team is, you know, the center depth is really good, but actually you're relying on Nick, uh, Nick Richards, who is a, a rotation big Mark Williams, who 
had flashes last year, but hasn't proven anything over a long period of time. Um, and Kai Jones, who, like we talked about, doesn't doesn't look ready yet. One injury to any of those guys, that centre front court, uh, you know, position is looking really thin. So I think it would just be good enough for like an eight seed. But depending on the ceiling that Mark Williams reaches. All right. Next question from at Jason Bow. Lamella Ball fails to stay healthy for 50% of the Hornets games this season. Would you feel it's fair to label him an injury prone player? James, I'm sure you know what my answer to this question is going to be. So I'll, I'll let you go first for this one again. I, this might be controversial, but I already think he is an injury prone player. I, I didn't even think he would have to miss 50%. I didn't think by him playing like 85, 90% of the season this year, I'd go, oh, well, his injuries are behind him. It, it doesn't often work like that. Like Steph Curry is maybe the rare, rare exception where he dealt with ankle injuries early in his career, um, you know, had that surgery. And then from there, he's kind of been fine. But for me, the concerns with Lamelo is those two surgeries he's had on his wrist and his, and his ankle, they were not serious-looking injuries at the time. It wasn't like as soon as it happened, you were like, yep, he's broken it. They were like, looked almost like nonchalant, like nothing had really happened, but you could tell something was wrong instantly. And for me, that just makes me worry that there is like some... I'm not a physicist, uh, you know, a guy who studies physiology, but there's some bone weakness problems there um i don't know maybe it's lack of strength around the bone i don't know but i don't feel like when you watch those plays in real time especially the ankle break there was anything that happened particularly in those plays that made it clear so for me i would already say that he maybe is injury prone and i would need to see a couple of years of him not having anything to put that behind him so that's that's my opinion See, I, so I'm basically like the exact opposite. And like, I don't disagree with like what you're saying that obviously like the injuries that he is suffering, like he's not falling and having some sort of like complex fracture on his wrist that you can tell immediately like, oh, it's, it's not facing the right way. Like his wrist is broken or his ankle, you know, clearly doesn't look right right now. Like it's broken. But I just think that like, if that were if that makes him injury prone, then I think a lot of players in the NBA are injury prone. And like it's not because I think LaMelo wouldn't like doesn't prepare or whatever, or yeah, it just doesn't no, drink enough I, milk. I don't either. I don't think there's anything that like necessarily he can do, but just certain people's yeah. physiology, like certain people get injured more than other people. It's just a fact of life. And from what I've seen so far, we saw it in Australia. We saw it, you know, in the NBA so far. He's struggled to stay healthy for a long time. And you can see in, like, his style of play, he's not a guy who seeks out contact, is he? He is a guy who his game is predicated on, like, not having contact, really. And, and I wonder if there's part of him that knows there is a... Uh, he is, lacks confidence. You know, he is a very thin frame. He is filling out slowly as he matures, but he's still, like, a skinny guy, and those skinny guys in the NBA have a pretty long tradition of like sometimes being more injury prone than those guys who are a little bit more in proportion for their size. See, that may be true, but then I just feel like that renders a significant portion of the NBA as injury prone. And like, I feel like it's just you have like, I'd rather view it as like players that, you know, have 
soft tissue problems are injury prone and someone like Lamelo just needs to hopefully not fall and roll up on his wrist or step on a fan's foot when he's like trying to chase a ball out of bounds or something like that. And it's basically the same thing that I think about like Gordon Hayward. Like I was looking at it in the year that Lamelo, you know, didn't have any of these things happen, which I think it boils more down to luck than anything. He played like what? I think it was 75 games that second year that he was an all-star because he didn't have any like sort of weird fall or whatever that I think most players would get injured on. And like, I was like, I was doing research on Gordon Hayward to compare this. He played in 72 games all but one year or 72 or more games all but one year before he dislocated his ankle. Since then, he's gotten rolled up on by OG Ananobi in the bubble with Boston, which he played through. Uh, he rolled up his ankle on Fred Van Vliet with Charlotte, which he missed time. Stepped on Miles Turner's foot with Charlotte, which he missed time. And those were the things that like took him out of the play in and kind of made it so the team tanked a little bit down the run. And it's just poor timing on that, obviously, but not really anything that the team or he can do about that. Uh, and then he caught himself on a fall this year and had some sort of weird shoulder fracture. Like you could just replace all those things with like what I just said about LaMelo. And it's kind of the same thing. Like he just stepped on a fan's foot, planted his ankle awkwardly, and then it broke. And he was like, kind of like not really looking like that his ankle had broken. He just kind of knew that it hurt or whatever. And he got up and it turned out that it was fractured and he needed surgery. Like, I just feel like stuff like that just happens to players on teams around the league, like all the time. And then that would just render a large swath of the NBA as injury prone, where it's like, I feel like people like, like Lonzo ball, for example, like his knee has had multiple surgeries and it still doesn't work. Like that is injury prone. Like he quite literally, his body like rejects medical treatment. Like LaMelo just gets a cast put on and comes back and is fine. But unfortunately he's just had stretches where like he well, gets the cast off and then falls and needs another one. Which is, is the wrist really the fine? Problem. He still plays with it since his rookie. I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's just become it. a thing because he had it. Like, so he, it's just like, a, I mean, I kind of, I do stuff like, like I crack my knuckles like all the time and like, just like jittery stuff. Like it's got to just be something like that almost. Like I feel like if it was like a weird, like it healed wrong or something, like he would have had an off season surgery to correct it between now and then or then and now. Maybe that would have been a Hornets take purge is that Lamella Ball would have been would be a better shooter <laughs> if it wasn't for his wrist still bothering him. You know, that True. would he, be, that maybe would he just needs one. to switch shooting hands and then he'll be yeah. fine. Um yeah interesting. What well, yeah one we're gonna disagree with I think like I say our definitions of injury prey may be a little bit different. Um I, that's pro yeah that's probably the the root of the yeah disagreement I would say okay Next one from at Mookie Vulture. Pick one player outside of Lamelo, who Lamelo, <laughs> outside of Lamelo, who, if they significantly exceed expectations, has the biggest impact on the Hornets' team success. Who did you pick, Chase? So, another one that I had to think about a little bit, but I landed on this one, and I actually think it is Brandon Miller. If he mm. comes in and exceeds expectations, even as the number two pick, which for some people may come with really high expectations for others. They may be lower than normal because you wanted another player or for a multitude of different reasons. I think if he does that, the Hornets wing depth flips from being the rosters, like one of its biggest weaknesses, especially last year. Uh, but right now, if, if he was one of those types of players and came in and made an immediate impact in the way that some of other number two picks have done in recent history, it'd probably be like one of its biggest strengths with Hayward bridges and Brendan Miller all being starting caliber players. I mean, if he came in, 
fit in right away. It was a consistent tribute contributor all season, you know, like rookie of the year threat contender, all rookie first team guy. I, I don't know, maybe scored at a similar rate to like what Ben Matherin did last season, like started off as a 20 point per game guy, fell back towards like 16 or 17 by the end of the year. I think that would be massive for the team's second unit, especially, but just in general, because he could eventually start into the starting slide into the starting unit uh, if that were the case. So yeah. what about you, James? Look, I think it's a good pick. I have to say, Brandon Miller is having like the most under talked about entering to the season yep. for like very a under game. the radar. Oh my, it, he's not, he's not even under the radar. The radar's not even anywhere nearby. Like it's ridiculous. It, I see. I keep seeing all these people being like, "Yeah, it was a quite pretty quiet summer for the Hornets off season. They didn't really do much." I'm like, they moved up to get the number two pick. They got new ownership in. They gave out the biggest contract in franchise history to Lamella Ball. They brought back two restricted free agents. I was like, maybe they've not gone and signed Fred Van Vliet or Dylan Brooks like Houston, but this was a freaking monster offseason, like big picture, looking at like the really important things. You tied down your star player. You drafted the number two overall pick. The highest pick since 2012 is now on your team, and they probably would have gone number one in maybe two of the last five drafts, maybe even three. How is that not being talked about more as like a major addition, an upgrade? For me, it all comes back down to this like Scoot Henderson, Brandon Miller media bias, which I've talked about on a podcast before. And, you know, I've discussed that the, the NBA world just seems to be like so unexcited for Brandon Miller. Uh, and I'm, I'm just can't wait to see what the guy can do because uh, I think he's going to be really good from day one. And I think he's got a really high ceiling, but I think it's a really good pick for this. Um, wasn't my pick. I went, and this is related to one of our early questions, I went with Mark Williams. Um, I think expectations are already high among the fan base, and maybe that's where you know Mookie's question here was if they significantly exceed expectations. But this is a team that has struggled defensively on the interior for a long, long, long time. I mean, going back to, even when Dwight Howard was on the team, they weren't actually a good rim defensive team. You need to be going back I mean, to the Emeka Okafor days before we had like a real defensive anchor for this team. And Mark Williams has the opportunity to do that. Um, you look at the impact of a guy like Walker Kessler last year on Utah. He came in, he made immediate impact. Um, and I think Mark Williams could have the same level impact going into this year too. Um, if he can stay healthy, uh, if he can you know, show a little bit more strength, Walker Kessler's a lot thicker than him, but Mark Williams has that. The length, the athleticism can probably move a little bit better on the perimeter. So I'm talking about a def like all defensive caliber. I want to see his name mentioned, Mark Williams. If the Hornets adding that to the offense they already have on this team, then I think they will be a playoff team. My question is, it just might be a year or two early for that. But if he exceeds those expectations, I think he could be the guy that really lifts his team. One of my favorite things about Mark is every time he gets asked one of those questions that's like, oh, what NBA players are you modeling your game after right now? It's always players that are either built similarly to him or play similarly. Like he answers like Rob Williams. Always. Or I think, he, Williams. I think he's referenced Evan Mobley before. It's always, it's always like fellow centers with all defense potential. So I feel like he definitely has his head in the right place to accomplish yeah. something like this and clearly has the physical tools as well. So – I, I, Mark is a 
strong contender for that for me as well. I'm I'm excited to see yeah. what he does I, this I'm, year. We saw it from day one. I remember watching Summer League. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was in Vegas at Summer League. And I, again, I was I was uh, getting married and on my uh, trip. So like I didn't pay as much attention online, but I was really impressed. Like he was playing behind Nick Richards um, and Kai Jones, but I was really impressed with the minutes he got in Summer League. Just as soon as he came on the court, the other team's offense had to change. Mm-hmm. And that is an impact that only certain types of players can have. And then after Summer League, people criticizing him say like I, I didn't I didn't realize that people weren't that impressed. They looked stiff. And I thought nothing was further from the truth. And I, I think his room defense is going to be legit. So I, I'm really excited to see him this year. Big year coming up for Big Mark. Absolutely. Question number six from Captain Regulator. Are the Hornets better off going for the play-in tournament this year or spending another year developing young players and cleaning house? James, you're up. Well, cleaning house, I think for Mitch Kupchak, he doesn't know what's in the house, right? This is his problem. This is why he's run this team back. Uh, they've not seen this core together with the additions of Brandon Miller, with these guys being a little bit older for a little bit of time here. Um, for me, I think they are definitely better trying to make the play in this year or the playoffs. Um, they need to have a season of these guys playing together to be able to make judgments on you know, who is the starting small forward or power forward? Who is part of this core? Those are the key questions that need to be added, asked. I think Brandon Miller edition is key for me. If they didn't have that other, like, young foundational core piece, which they have in Brandon Miller now, then I would maybe be on that, uh, you know, support of, of let's tank it again. But that's what we did last year. They had the gap year. They got the high draft pick. Now I think you've got some good starter level players you've got two star potential talents in miller and ball and now i think you have to push on because lamello signed his contract but we know they can request trades pretty much at any point from now so for me combined with having the the weaker the weaker draft which is coming up next year in 2024 that's been covered a lot the lottery odds as we've covered before don't reward losing as much as they used to um so Combine all these things together, I think they have to push forward. There is this fan base, these players, they cannot take another year like last year. Um, there needs to be some push, some progress here so that everyone can see. Yeah, we're on the exact same page on this one. I think it's important for the organization to have like consistent messaging in terms of what your goals are as a team year after year. It wouldn't really make sense, I, I think, for the front office to essentially say to the coaches and players, Hey, last year we wanted to make a playoff or a play and run, uh, but we got decimated by injuries and our second best player was out of the league. Even though everyone is back and healthy now, we're just going to pack it in again and aim for a top pick in what could be a historically weak draft class. Uh, Like that message is just, that is not going to land like with anyone, like team coaches, scouts, front office, play like fans, media, the only way that that really works is if the new owners had come in and been like, yep, this is our team. We want literally everything to be done our way. We're going to get our players, our coach, everything. And they didn't do that. Like they, they came out and said, uh, and this is, this is hinting at another question we're going to be answering on here later. They came out and said that they're not necessarily going to be doing that. So, and they haven't already like Steve Clifford, Mitch Kupchak still in there, no big trades or anything like that. Um, so I don't necessarily think that it would be a good idea 
to just keep all of these guys around, but basically just tell them like, we're not shooting for any, even though we were shooting for this with this group two years ago, we're no longer going to do that because for whatever reason, we don't think it's viable anymore. Now, if you want to give it one more last big push, and if it doesn't work out, if it crashes and burns this year, like it did last year, and you want to rebuild next summer around like Mello, Brandon Miller and Mark Williams and clean house other than that, and make a run at the top pick in the 2025 draft, which is a much deeper class, especially at the top, then we might be onto something. But that's a question for next summer. So we'd have to they see. They need to figure out what they've got here. Like they, they need agree. to figure yes. out who is the starting five going forward. Like who who is that we're going to be building around? Is Miles Bridges part of that? That's like a big, big question for this season. Like Miles Bridges, Brandon Miller, what does that look like together? Uh, PJ Washington, what's his role? Um, th- there's so much, so many questions right now uh, that we need the season to have the answers for. So I absolutely should be pushing forward. Uh, I think we're both agreed on that one. Um, okay, quick break. Just before we move on to the next question, I want to tell you about allhornets.com, which brings you this podcast, and it is a credential show Hornets outlet powered by Sports Illustrated. AllHornets.com's aim is to bring you 360-degree coverage of all things Charlotte Hornets, from breaking news, rumors, fan Q&As, just like this one, and in-depth analysis. AllHornets.com covers it all, and nobody does it better. Okay, next question. At Will Parker, 81, what changes will the new owners make initially, Chase? So are you expecting them to see any changes in the, uh, the short term here? I alluded to it just a moment ago, but I do not think so. My my guess, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. My guess is very few changes that are evident to like fans or outsiders will be made initially, at least, you know, in this summer and fall and in the upcoming season. They kind of said that they weren't going to make any sort of sweeping basketball related decision without making like a full evaluation, which I assume is just this whole year and at least up until like the trade deadline unless things really go awry. But I would imagine that the work environment maybe has changed for team employees and like sales and business and marketing and social media and whatnot with new people at the top. And that is kind of where like culture changing and improving your standing as an organization in the league like starts is taking care of the people that are there year round that never really changes in the way that the on-court staff and players do. And I, but I, I would bet that if necessary, big changes will be made next summer when Schnall and Plot can also have a full year of like majority ownership yeah. experience under their belt. Like that, that will be a part of it as well. Um, but right now, I'd imagine it's more behind the scenes stuff that is changing rather than stuff that we can see on a day to day basis as yeah. followers of the team. And, and to put it bluntly, like this is how I prefer a new ownership group to act. Like there is Absolutely. everyone points to Matt Ishbier and the Suns as like, he took over and literally traded for Kevin Durant like the next day. And they've gone all in. Money is not an object. It's just been like crash bang wallet. Um, this, like that, that, it, that could be fun. It could also burn out in two seasons. Uh, what they are doing is they're coming into this team and they want to evaluate. They want to evaluate the staff who are in post, the structures, the environment, the culture. They want to look at all of that. that and that takes time. Um, you know, like I say, this roster is pretty much locked in. I think they will be in complete evaluation mode of pretty much everybody in the building. Um, I mean, some things that I have heard them say, they are going to be like like immediate priorities. And this isn't exactly fun on-court basketball stuff, but if you're a local person who goes to games, renovations to Spectrum Center. Um, 
I think Plotkin said or, or Chanel said, uh, this facility is going to be dramatically different two years from now, three years from now. It will feel different. It will be a great experience for fans. We'll have many new uh, areas and exciting places for people to go, and it'll have a North Carolina feel. That is underway. That is agreed to. The city has agreed to put in the capital, and the project is well underway. It will start in the earnest this summer in the back of house, but next summer we'll start to see some major changes. So the the actually area of focus right now is probably like on that arena more than maybe on some like the basketball lot side. That's maybe what you might see like visibly first if you're a fan. Um, but the the only other thing, and it's kind of related to what you said, is I do think they'll maybe start to be making plans on expanding their their workforce. So they talked about wanting to be known as one of the you know the best franchises for analytics, expanding the analytics, uh, sports performance. They talked about. And Charlotte generally has been known as a small budget front office. You know, they have a small staff footprint. They don't have like a lot of the most forward thinking guys. And I think these two will be changing that. They'll be bringing in, I think, bigger staffs to, to work in this part of this front office. So I, I think you'll see some of those changes there. And I say see them. You probably won't see them. <laughs> these things are probably going to happen quietly behind the scenes uh, I was even before this podcast, I even checked on the Hornets job site, see if they're hiring to be like, I wonder if they're, you know, putting up any like new interesting jobs yet uh, out. But yeah, I, I do think there might be some changes there during the season. But again, that might come after the evaluation phase too. All right. This next one is from at Chan Bam. What are your thoughts on the team's direction since acquiring Terry and Gordon and then drafting? Lamello. James, you want me to take the lead on this one or you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I, I want to go first with this one, actually. I was looking through, like, since that summer, what the team have done. And I have to say, it's pretty disappointing when you look at it in total. <laughs> I, I mean, a lot of the good things are from before then, right? So, like, Lamello, firstly, I wouldn't have done the Gordon Hayward signing, said at the time. I've said it every year since. I know we disagree on this. It's okay. We still get along. Um, but but <laughs> since acquiring Terry and Gordon and drafting Mallow, since that point, there's been a, like a string of not great moves, in my opinion. I mean, I can go through in more detail, but I'm curious to get your thoughts. Do, do you have a similar point of view or are you on the other end? No, I actually do. I, my opinion on it is basically, so I like these those three moves, like acquiring Terry, acquiring Gordon, drafting Lamello. But the smaller moves outside of that, like I largely like haven't been as much of a fan of, except for like the marginal ones, like hitting on second round picks uh, and stuff like that, like consolidate drafting certain players that I personally like, like liked and was a fan of uh, at the draft in the draft at the time. Like, but other than that, like I, I, I am in agreement with you that it is not necessarily inspiring to look at their no. trade signing and draft record. Since they've not kicked 2020, on. basically, they, they, they've relied on internal development, and right, I'd say that has been like it. Well, before, I try not to speak about Miles Bridges too much just because you can understand, but like at the time, you could argue that was looking good, but that was from beforehand as well. Like the exciting right. pieces on this team, Mark Williams is maybe one of the more recent ones, but like that is that is it. You could argue Brandon Miller, but let's be honest, Brandon Miller was by mistake, not by design. This team did yep. not get Brandon Miller through like strategic rebuilding. They did it because they weren't very good. Miles Bridges got suspended and they had a shed load of injuries. So I'm not giving the franchise credit for like rebuilding and getting that pick. B, 
because it was a mixture of all those things plus lottery luck. You know, the the Devonte Graham trade was a piece of genius. That was that was literally what I wrote down was my favorite work out other than those three. That, yeah, that, but that was one was great. Yeah, you then compound that by essentially trading Devonta Graham for a bunch of second round picks. Which look, I'm still saying those second round picks could work out to be great. At the end of the day, the value of the trade when you compare it to what other like 15th picks in the draft have gone for was not good. Um, so I still didn't like that trade. They fired Borrego, which I still didn't agree with the firing at the time, and I said it and. Uh, we had all the scenario, the saga last summer. We're trying to find a new coach, which they struggled to do, and ended up back with Steve Clifford, who I think can still be a good coach for this team. But I, James Borrego was doing good things with this team anyway. Um, whether there was stuff off court that I still haven't heard about, I don't know about. I don't know. Um, but I, yeah, that's still one. Uh, we obviously got the Kai Jones, James Booknight draft, absolute killer, uh, which is really, I feel like, I feel like that's that draft has done more to damage Mitch Kupchak's reputation than maybe like any other move, even more than the Gordon Hayward signing. Like that is the oh, one yeah. that that NBA analysts around the place, because if you look at all the other players in that draft outside of these guys, they're all like good players. Um, that's the one that NBA analysts really hammer Charlotte on. And I can't really bl- say I blame them right now. Oh, I, I completely agree. I actually, I, I would, I like, because you can look at the Gordon Hayward signing and not be upset with like the dollars and what it meant in terms of like how you were trying to rebuild and make a playoff push at one time. But he, in his Charlotte career, he's averaging 17, five, four, and a steal per game on good efficiency. So he's been like a legitimately good player for you at the very least. Like what with these other moves, it's just like, so at the time when I, when they originally had drafted James Booknight, Kai Jones, and, um, why am JT I like, Thor, JT Thor? I was like, I was like, I know they picked somebody out that in the 30s, yeah. but JT Thor. It was it looked like a good draft at the time. And hindsight is obviously 2020 here, but you have to think like that team was coming off of a surprisingly good year, and they added three rookies when in Mitch Kupchak's own words, the phone was ringing off the hook when they had the 11th pick and James Booknight yeah. was there. Yeah. So it seems like this was not even a guy that they necessarily planned on drafting. It just kind of like fell into their lap. And it was like a reactionary, like risk averse move. That's like, this guy wasn't supposed to be here. Now he is. We're just going to take him because it's good value here. And the guy that we actually like Kai is most likely going to be available. And we can just trade back into the draft and get him using that pick that is now in the hands of the Spurs, which has somewhat hamstring your ability or hamstrung your ability to make trades and trade first round picks in the last couple of years because it's had protections on it and it still does currently. Yeah. And like, it's just those little ancillary moves. And like, if you even, and then you can just look at the players that they didn't pick in the, the, in those slots as well. Like I'm, I personally, I had Moses Moody above James book night. Anyway, you can haggle like Moses Moody would probably be a better player. Certainly a better fit on this roster would have played more immediately, but it's not even about like who they pass on. It's more just like the process in which it all happens seems so like risk averse. And like you said, just like not forward thinking. It's kind of just like, we're going to do the draft, how the draft is meant to happen and whatever happens from there. 
we'll just we'll just go with it. You know what I let mean? Me, like, let me lift the veil here a little bit because we're a few years on now. You know, th- you're right that the mistake they made the same mistake with both Kai Jones and James Buck Knight, and that was that they drafted them because they impressed in one v- one on non workouts. Right? I've I've heard that now. You know, it's been a few years. People take some time to speak, but that that's generally. What I've heard is that in pre-draft workouts, they really popped and they really impressed. And I'm sure they would because of like their athleticism, how they can move. But we should all know, come on, like you, you scout everything for the whole college season. You go to workout and then you go, oh, that guy was good. Like what's, you've got to understand how guys fit in here. And it seems like that has been a consistent theme. We heard that during the draft this year being reported that the Hornets place a high emphasis on workouts. And that I know for a fact is true. Um, so th- that was the issue with both of those guys and they were consistent with at least, but they're consistently making the, a poor error in judgment. Um, I don't think the best teams are based are, are drafting based off workouts. Um, so yeah, I think that's the, that's the big thing with those two guys. Um, but yeah, it, it's been a pretty depressing feel like, and also just, uh, generally I would say it's been a very reserved approach. To build yeah. team building, like I think that's, that's my biggest issue with it all is it's a very risk averse, conservative yeah. team building approach, which doesn't work small, in the modern NBA, really. Yeah, small markets generally have to get quite creative, like taking exactly. on bad contracts and for, for picks. You have to take some risks here and there, and they seem so content that they're just going to draft and develop players, and they will that's be able hard to, to do. Yeah, like they've hit on what six second round picks and or four or five at least in those that three-year span? Like, are you just going to keep doing that forever? Like, that's hard to do. It puts a lot of strain on, like, what we've said is a small and, everyone else and is not developing very modern draft front office too. staff. Right, Everyone's developing, exactly. right? So you're not the only one trying to develop your players. So if everyone's doing that, but then on top of that, they're doing some other moves as well. They're being a little bit more aggressive, taking swings. There's going to be some losses, but there'll be some win- wins. And it feels like Charlotte are just like, just never really got out of first or second gear and are just kind of going around. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say that since the moment that they drafted LaMelo, even though there's been highs like particular wins, a lot of the, the driving forces behind that are from pre-LaMelo, not since. And I don't think this team has been great with surrounding. I mean, they didn't have a big for how long? Like, we're relying on the Mason Plumley. You know, Mary Bismarck Biombo Merry Go Round. Like that's just malpractice to have Lamelli Ball's part like center partner be one of those guys. Um so yeah, big picture. I think it's fair to say it's been disappointing. Okay, next up at Will Parker 81. I think this is maybe the second question from Will Parker. Um, what are your expectations for Miles Bridges return? Um, and like he put like a, a season high and low. So I don't. I looked at this trying to like think of like some stat lines that I think that he could maybe put up next year. I, did you think of it in the same way, or you were just more thinking like high and low in terms of value? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Was like I just I I figure I I also want to preface this. I'm not rooting for him to exceed expectations as a player. I think no. we all know why. Um, I think the high would basically be him returning to the 21, 22 form pretty quickly, like being a 20 point per game scorer that secondary creator defend opposing wings and is like a willing improving passer because like i don't really think you can ask for an improvement to have been made necessarily off of those 
numbers from two years ago. Um, but I think the low obviously would just involve him taking like most of the season to adjust and reintegrate himself after the 10 game suspension to start the year. Um, like, I, I don't know what that would look like from a numbers perspective necessarily. Just, I guess just probably a couple percentage points or, you know, a couple numbers down from whatever they were at the last time he played. But I, I'm very interested to see like how that kind of goes, I mm-hmm. guess, all from an pure, from purely a on-court basketball perspective. Cause it's, it's going to definitely be like, not weird, but like a strange thing for Cliff, Steve Clifford to have to work through with like that Miles's return, PJ signing this new contract and presumably wanting the same type of role that he had two years ago. Gordon Hayward's there, Brandon Miller's there, Cody Martin's kind of, it's just a lot, it's a lot of balancing that's gonna be that's yeah. gonna have to happen early in the season. And it'll be interesting to see how the lineup shakes out. If Miles Bridges has like a, a down year, then I think that he won't come back to Charlotte. Because if I he's agree. like coming off the bench for the year. He's not going to re-sign as an unrestricted free agent to come off the no. bench. If he's not in Steve Clifford's plans, and if he's not maybe playing as well, then you know the argument is going to be like he'll like he's not he's going to like most players would they say well this isn't the right situation for me I've not been able to be put in a position where I can be my best I'm going to look to go elsewhere. Um, the only way I think Bridges comes back long term <laughs> um, is if he has a really good year. And he's clearly establishes himself as a foundational piece next to Lamelo Ball, and is maybe the second or third best player on this team. And in that case, then maybe thinks, yes, this is a good situation for me. I'm going to get the ball in my hands. I'm going to get minutes. I'm going to get the role that I want. Um, yeah, I mean, in his last season, 21-22, he averaged 35 minutes per game, 20 points, seven rebounds, four assists, basically blocking a steal per game. Shot 49% from the field, 33% from three. Um, I was thinking this year, what what am I expecting? So I kind of went for like a median stat line here. And that was, um, I went 30 minutes per game. I, I don't think they're maybe going to lean them quite as much. One, because I think they have more options. Two, because especially early in the year, he's probably going to come off the bench. Like after his 10-game suspension, building himself back into the lineup. Um, I think his usage will probably be a little bit lower too. I think that he might try and not come in and take over, like trying to find his way, find his place again in the rotation. What's the role going to be? He doesn't want to step on anyone's toes coming back in after a year out. So I think his usage is going to go down a little bit. You may, but you maybe see some of the defensive play go up a little bit as he you know, tries to hustle and prove and play with energy to the fan base, to his team, to kind of like show his worth after a year out. So I, I think I went with like something like 16 points, six rebounds, two-ish assists, and then kind of like maybe probably like slightly down percentages again, just from like you call it rustiness. I mean, this is unprecedented. You, you, We've never had a player missing a whole season without an injury. I, in fact, I looked. Darren Collison missed two years before coming out of retirement to play for the Lakers, but he played like 12 games and didn't barely played at all, so you can't really compare it. And he had run our test after he got suspended for the Miles at the Palace uh, he basically, I think he had like an 86-game suspension, something like that. He missed a big period of time. And he came back and he was good. But even then, that was like going across two different seasons. Um, yeah, it's just a strange one for, for Miles. Um, but I, I'm assuming his figures will be down slightly across the board. Uh, both usage, minutes, counting stats, efficiency, 
Um, and if that's the case, then I do wonder if he thinks, well, I'm better than this. I've showed him better than this. I'm going to go elsewhere and do it. All right. All right. Our last question on the docket Final here. One. From Adam R. Ladd. In your opinion, do you believe the Hornets have a toxic locker room situation or has this just been an odd run of coincidence? Definitely a hot topic as of late uh, <laughs> among Hornets fans and followers yeah. that this is the, 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 the off-season, August and September is the worst time to start uh, going on with social media campaigns. We, we were talking before the show. If, if you know, Kai Jones did all this, like, during the season, it would just would probably, like, have been, like, a little puff in the air. But because there's nothing else going on, it's, like, raise this, again, this idea of it being a toxic locker room. Um, what do you say, Chase? You, I mean, you, neither of us are in the locker room. Let's preface it with this. Like, neither, we are... No, we're looking at it from the outside. We're reading the tea leaves, trying to make assumptions, which is always dangerous, right? But what do you think? Have the Hornets got a toxic locker room? Well, that's funny that you say that because that was literally the beginning of my answer was that I don't, we don't know for sure. And because, because of that, like, I think it's definitely more of an odd run of coincidence. I mean, obviously, like, for one, the biggest thing that has happened off court that leads people to believe this over the last year was a serious legal situation that was out of their hands and they had nothing to do with. Um, but I also think like it's not on the organization or like the veteran players, which is something people always like point to. It's like, if you see someone on Twitter, like replying to a tweet about the Hornets locker room being like, yeah, this is what happens when you have Rozier and Hayward as your vets. But yeah. like People from the ages of 19 to 25 or whatever, like you would consider like a young player that's developing, like the, everyone else in the world is, you know, adjusting to adult life and learning through mistakes and developing as a person on their own as well. Why? Why? Because they're basketball players. Do they need a 34 year old guy to like hover around them and be their babysitter and their guide through off court life and tell you how to make decisions? Like it's not Gordon Hayward's job and Terry Rozier's job to like, tell people what to do when they leave practice. Like it's a, their job to lead by example on the court. And it's the organization's job to provide like support and give advice in like whatever ways they can, but they can't, you can't control anybody. Like this, this isn't the 1970s. Line, exactly. Like, you you're, you're a like, rookie. You can't make your employees do anything really. Like, no, in the night, you know, you're not a rookie in a new city where there's no one around. And the only people you've got your teammates, these players have so many people in their entourage agents you know, they're, they're cooks yeah, like, they, they they make like, enough money. Like you can just move your whole family to your city with you immediately. Like it's just so much harder to, and social media only exacerbates this problem also because everything you do ends up as some sort of like post or photo or whatever online as well. But like, I am like, it's, I just think it's way, you're putting way too much on like the organization and the other players that are not doing anything wrong by being like, Oh, this is a toxic locker room because of some, weird things that have happened with a couple of people that don't necessarily have like anything to do with basketball and like aren't things that were really privy to athletes like personal lives either so like like again, i just don't know how we would be able to like confirm that it's an actual problem other than just like some weird things that have happened that could really happen to anybody in this yeah. day and age of like young people having lots of money and access to the internet yeah so for me for me, toxic is when like the teammates hate each other. Exactly. They're anti-coach. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case. I think these guys enjoy being with each other. Like toxic is a 
is the wrong word. The word I would maybe say is they're an immature locker room, right? I think they lack a sense of maturity. I think they're mostly good guys, but I think they do lack some steer in the right direction, like some role models. I'm not saying it has to be people on the team. We know Mitch Kupchak wanted to get more veteran leadership. And I do think, but like you can't just get a veteran that doesn't play because like for those who've been in sports teams, when you're getting told what you should and shouldn't do from like guys who just like come in and sit on the bench, it, it just doesn't carry the same weight unless no. you're like a legendary franchise figure like Udonis Haslam, right? Like he is absolutely, but you can't just employ vet minimum guy X off the street and expect him to come in and change your culture. Um, I, I think they're a little bit young. I think they're a little bit brash, uh, maybe a little bit too online at times for my liking, right? But that's the new generation. That's just us getting old and the new generation, how they are. Um, are they always 100% focusing on like winning a championship and having that like that Mamba mentality, the Michael Jordan mentality? I don't think so. Probably not. I think there's a lot of teams that don't have that though. I think that 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 style is like going out the league now. Yeah, a little bit. It, de it definitely is. There are very yeah. few players or especially teams as a whole. There's that, no like, rivalries anymore. Everyone's buddy, buddy, friendly with each other. Like everyone's getting paid a shitload of money and like everyone's having a pretty good life and yeah, they're taking it seriously, but it's not like win at all costs. Uh, you know, they, they've already made life changing money. They did probably a lot of them aren't growing up in like some of the levels of poverty that people are growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that you know grow the chip on the shoulder. Everyone says they got a chip. Let's be honest, most of them have been in college now with nil and been like earning hundreds of thousands of pounds since they were like 18 years old. I, I just don't think so. So, a little bit immature, uh, but I don't think toxic is the right word. And that, that's immaturity comes from just having probably so many young guys on the roster. Like it's so different when you've got a bunch of young guys to like being, having one or two around a bunch of veteran guys, you, you kind of like, you act up to your environment. And I don't think the Hornets have necessarily created that environment of older players just because they've been through this rebuilding process. I think that's a great way to put it. We got anything else? I mean, we've ran through, 10 questions here hit all, pretty much all corners of the Hornets universe right now. Anything, anything you wanted to add in here? Any other like honorable mention questions that we saw or anything? I'm just getting really excited for the season. I, I don't know. I, how you're I, it's, feeling. it's starting to hit me too. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting this is, up. this is the hard point point, but there's so many things to like be excited about um, for this team to look out for this year. Like last season from the minute, from the minute Mars bridges happened last summer, like just a, a malaise and a depressive state like set over because like nothing else mattered after that point. It was like, well, you've just taken the second best player off the team. You've not replaced them. Never mind the coaching issues. Never mind the injuries. Like it was always going to be an issue. And so far, touch wood, we've not been unlucky as the New Orleans Pelicans have with Trey Murphy and Jose Alvarado. Um, the Hornets seem healthy. They seem like they're going to have the training camp that we want. And I just really want to see this this squad get out there and put it together because this is like the culmination really of like three, four years of team building, basically really building towards this point. By the time this podcast comes out, it will be 16 days 
until the NBA preseason opens, October 5th. Training camps are going to open for that even, like late September, the first couple days of October. Media day being less than two weeks also. It's coming. We are almost there. Like a, a month from now, we'll be previewing the Hornets' first game. Like it, it's so close. The wait is almost over. We're done talking hypotheticals. We got real basketball coming up here very, very soon. I'm very excited. Looking forward to it. Right, Chase, I'll catch you next week. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening.